can follow in your Bible, uh, in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 14, or you can look uh, online at the bulletin where you'll see it printed there. <coughs> Excuse me. Mark uh, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. This event, a series of events, occurs uh, directly after Jesus has taken three of his disciples on the mountain and was transfigured uh, before them, uh, where his garments looked like lightning and pure white and, and blazing with, with glory as he was revealed in this way to the disciples. And so uh, they're coming down, just having uh, been together in that, uh, and see this crowd. When they came to the disciples, that is, Jesus and the three coming to the other nine, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water <clears throat> to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The word of the Lord. Let's pray before we proceed. Oh Lord, give us grace to understand your word, to see the glory of God, to see the glory of Christ, Lord, to build up our faith in your ability, your willingness to save your people, 
to grow your people in Christ, to preserve your people. Lord, open up our hearts to see the goodness and greatness of God toward his people at all times. Make us a people, Lord, who have great faith in your commitment to us through Jesus Christ. Amen. I think a lot of people can identify with this cry of the Father when he says, I believe, help my unbelief. We all many times feel like we're, we've hit the brick wall of just how far our faith can go. And we feel like this thing that we want or thing that we want to believe God for, or we hope for is out there, but we can't get it because we don't have the faith necessary for it. And that can be a downward spiral where you don't have something, you have less faith and less faith and less faith. So this raises a, a great issue, this, this matter of, of faith. And, and you can see how upset Jesus is in the face of unbelief as he is many times in the Gospels. And this can threaten us as well. This can dishearten us uh, because we realize how displeased God is with our unbelief. And yet, the net here is that he did act. And Jesus did heal this boy. And that should encourage us. That's the message uh, that is given us in this passage so as we, we come to this passage, I want you to be encouraged that there's much here to, uh, not to destroy your faith or to uh, weaken it, but to build it up, to strengthen you uh, to believe in the great things God would do for you in Christ Jesus. So this is an interesting passage as we, we come to this first point of looking at uh, the problem of unbelief. Uh, it's an interesting passage passage, it recalls chapter 1 of Mark where Jesus in his baptism is said to be God's son uh, by, the voice of, by the voice of God from heaven, and then he goes immediately to meet Satan in, in warfare, spiritual warfare in the wilderness. Well, he has just now again heard the voice from heaven. The disciples have heard the voice from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And immediately after hearing that, uh, Jesus comes into conflict with uh, spiritual forces again. It's probably also a little, uh, a little picture for us, a pattern for God's people that we will worship and we will war. We will worship we will war. We will hear God's promises and his, uh, his love of, of us in Christ Jesus, uh, his uh, glorifying Christ to us uh, that encourages us and builds us up, but it's always for warfare. Uh, so this pattern then is a repeat of, of chapter 1 in Mark. <clears throat> Another interesting thing about this is the the crowd's great amazement at him. Now, usually uh, the crowd, the people are astonished because of a great work Jesus has done, a healing he has done, or the disciples astonished that he could cause the winds and the waves to be calm. Uh, 
But here, the astonishment is up front. It's unprecedented. There's nowhere else in, the, in Mark that this happens. And this is a, an underscored word of astonishment, like great astonishment. The only other two times we meet it, once Jesus in the garden when he is so distressed that he is facing the prospect of God's wrath on the cross. So his uh, overwhelming astonishment. And then the astonishment of the women when they come to the tomb uh, to find, to, to bring spices to Jesus' body, and instead they find an angel seated in glory, and they're astonished. So some have said that this, this can't really refer to maybe uh, hanging on or, or vestiges of the glory Jesus experienced on the mountain because Jesus told his disciples, uh, don't say a word about this. But even though they might not say a word about it or explain uh, what had gone on on the mountain, still that is, I think, I agree with those scholars who say this is the best explanation of what uh, happened, that Jesus still had some eminence of his glory that astonished uh, the crowd. And what's interesting, too, in the flow is that the glory on the mountain, as he's coming down, he speaks again of his suffering, and then you have this little echo of glory here. So to, to help us understand in, in Mark's apology for the cross, as he's speaking to Gentiles, bear in mind, he knew he was going to die, but he was the glorious one of God, and, and, and his death is couched in glory at this point. Uh, one scholar even calls the whole book of Mark an apology for the cross to show uh, the glory of Christ that he laid down his life uh, purposefully. He knew he was going to lay it down, and yet he was the one the Father owned as his glorious son. That's the magnificent message of the whole Bible. The magnificent, glorious son of God came to earth to bear our sin. Uh, the amazing uh, display of who God truly is, the God who would sacrifice himself in, in this way. And so uh, they're, they're amazed. There's a, a chaotic uh, situation. Uh, the scribes are arguing with the disciples, uh, challenging them, probably uh, asking, why are you even trying to do this? You don't have authority uh, from us to do exorcism of, of demons. Uh, and so there's this back and forth, and probably Jesus' words are, why? Why are you arguing with him? Why are you scribes arguing with my disciples? You know, do you, you want to talk to somebody? Talk to me. Because the scribes are probably trying to further embarrass uh, the disciples. But right then, when Jesus is challenging them, uh, why are you doing this, uh, to, to speak to them about it, then the Father breaks in the father of the child, who tells them what the situation is. I brought my son. The spirit makes him mute when it takes hold of him and uh, throws him down. I ask your disciples to cast it out. They were not able to. Now, one thing to, to see here is the uh, maliciousness of this demon. 
As one scholar writes, the object of demon possession is to distort and destroy the image of God in man. And the fact that this is being done to a child, a helpless child, and you can see the demon doesn't care anything about that. He doesn't care that this is a child. He has utter disdain, Satan does, for all children of any age, of all humanity of any kind throughout the whole world. As Jesus describes him in John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning. That's all he's ever been. That's all he ever will be. And so we're just seeing the tip of the uh, iceberg of of this hatred that uh, the demons have for humanity. So uh, a murderer from the beginning, he destroyed Adam and Eve, uh, their their, uh, perfection in the garden, their fellowship with God. Uh, Their own son killed his brother. And then five generations later, uh, Lamech, brags about murder and that he is not going to be held accountable for it. Even at the beginning, there's this trace of the murder that is brought into mankind uh, that is all generated ultimately by the enemy of our souls. So they came, he came to the disciples because they were the representatives of, of Christ. They, they stood in his place. They were regarded as a part of him, uh, sharing his power. And they apparently had tried to do it, but they simply couldn't. And when we compare what is said here uh, with what's written in Matthew, as it gets to the end and we kind of have the, we have this same question that the disciples do, why couldn't we cast it out? And so we want to bring that forward and, and discuss it right here because that impinges right here on, on why this uh, was happening. And then, of course, as soon as he hears this, he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? And some would say, because he is addressing generation, this doesn't include the disciples, but I'm of uh, that group that would say, It doesn't end with the disciples, but certainly includes the disciples. Because Matthew, at the end of this uh, same account, says, Jesus says to them, it was because of the littleness of your faith. And we want to couple that with, this only comes out by prayer. So there was a lack of prayer and faith on the disciples' part, but that was just symbolic of the unbelief of their whole society the unbelief of humanity. And so here, even the disciples uh, are are participating, you might say, in the unbelief. Uh, The disciples apparently had, in Jesus' absence, uh, become uh, self-assured, self-confident. They had uh, not been trusting in God's power, but but thinking uh, that they had it all themselves. A hardness of heart that... Three times before, Jesus had spoken about their unbelief and their hardness of heart. And so, this probably does include the disciples and and show that they're uh, a part of what is going on. So, this this is so uh, similar to the cry of God 
in Numbers 14 when the people of Israel refused to go into the land, refused to believe in God's goodness, in God's greatness, and as they were on the edge of the promised land after God had brought them through through his great miracles out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, sustained them uh, in the desert, and they are facing the prospect of these giants and wall cities, and they do not want to go, and they refuse to go. They refuse because they don't, don't think God will bring them in. They, they do not have confidence in God's promise, his goodness, his greatness. And so right there in Numbers 14, 11, the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Like you just think of Jesus himself manifesting in the flesh the glory of God and manifesting the power of God over and over and over and still he is met with unbelief in spite of all of his signs in Deuteronomy 32 there's this uh, cry from God that uh, that they have dealt corruptly with him They're no longer his children because they're blemished, they're crooked and twisted generation. This is an echo of that. And what's striking about this is what God said to faithless Israel. Now Jesus is speaking to his future church, which is housed, you might say, in the disciples themselves. This is a word to us. Uh, Now, at the same time, what patience Jesus has. He does not reject the disciples. He does not turn them away. He calls them out for their unbelief. And he's even saying, I'm so over this. I'm so tired of this. Not only how long will I be with you, how long will I bear up under this unbelief? It's an amazing statement. But it shows that he expects and calls for Rest and confidence and joyful trust in him. An expectancy that he will be good. He will do us good. He will do great things for us. Believe me. Trust me. Rest in me. It's interesting when Jesus is teaching in Luke 18 that we should always pray and not lose heart. And he gives uh, some illustrations uh, about this. But he says at the end of that little passage, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Remarkable, isn't it? This this cry uh, against the unbelief uh, that he's surrounded with and even the cry in another place of, will there be faith? Faith. Well, when he calls the child, uh, calls for the child, the demon throws him down right in front of Jesus, uh, probably part of it just to intimidate Jesus, and then also just to be in contempt uh, of Jesus. And you see Jesus' great compassion. It, it seems a bit weird, like this, this boy is being thrown down, and, and you think, well, do something, Jesus. But this reveals uh, his... Uh, compassion as he turns to the father and 
And it's, it's like if you're, you, you, someone's talking to you about some condition they have and, and you're just stricken and you say, well, how long? How long is, has this been happening to you? That's, that's a question of compassion and, and that's what Jesus asks here. And notice though that the doubts and the unbelief do not determine Jesus' willingness or his ability to act. And so he is going to do good in the face of unbelief. And this is where we have to realize, you know, he's, he, he did that with each one of us. Each one of us. He had to act for us in the face of our unbelief. In spite of our unbelief. Because as we're going to see, he's the one that initiates and brings about faith in our lives. And so we have a picture here of not just them, but of us. That we can be encouraged that he goes ahead of our faith and in spite of our unbelief to act for us. Uh, And so there's so much here to encourage us. And it shows in this whole event that Jesus... Uh, mission is to confront and defeat the powers of evil. Uh, as this evil has come upon this child, he, his, he has come to do this. As it states in 1 John 3, 8, for this reason the Son of God appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. So his whole mission, and continues to be, his whole mission is ultimately to destroy the works of the devil. And to destroy the works of the devil means to release his people from the control and dominion of the devil. He says, he'd said earlier about his own work, speaking of Satan as the strong man, he says, one, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man. And so Jesus is the one alone that can bind the strong man and release us so that we no longer serve ourselves, we no longer serve our idols, we no longer live for the things of this world, but we, we give ourselves up to live joyfully for God himself in Jesus. And you'll notice here in, in the, the presence of Jesus does not bring at first peace, but conflict, uh, because the child is, is thrown down. And sometimes it can look like things are falling apart, however, uh, Jesus is working. He's transforming. He breaks down things before he rebuilds them. He dismantles in order to reconstruct them. And many times he reveals our weakness in order to bring about more faith in us. And so this whole, in this whole event of underlying, uh, underscoring the unbelief of humanity, the unbelief of the Father, the unbelief of the disciples... Uh, Jesus is working to bring about greater faith. And so we, we see the absolute dominion of this demon as it, he, he describes that it's from childhood and whenever he wants to, all the time, at will, basically, uh, that, that Satan, this demon, does this to this child. And so it's, it's to show the absolute control and dominion of the, the, the demon that still cannot stand in the face of Jesus' power. No matter what control 
the enemy has, no matter what control Satan has over his people, Jesus will set us free. This reminds us of the other, uh, the demoniac, the garrison demoniac, and we read of him, that one, that man had often be bound, been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And in that, in that same vein, here is a demon. Nothing could be done, but Jesus can and will do something. And so it's not a clean break as to the problems with unbelief, but now I want to move uh, into these possibilities of faith. And you realize when he responds to the uh, father uh, that it's, it's not my power. In fact, I, I love his quoting the man. If you can do it, if you can, you know, that kind of statement. All things are possible for one who believes. There's nothing wrong with the power. There's nothing wrong with me. There's no limit to me and what I will and can do for you. The, the issue is, is trust me. Put yourself in my hands. Believe that I want to act and I have all power to act. And so we come to acknowledge our absolute weakness. But the bridge of faith brings us to his tremendous power. And so it's, it doesn't depend ultimately even on my faith. It's, it doesn't depend on how much faith I have. It's putting my helplessness in his hands. It's always about his power. And the issue, the problem with us is that we constantly set limits as to what the Lord will do and can do for us and will do for his people and for the gospel in this world. So there is a, an interesting phrase one scholar, uh, William Lane, had. He called it the disastrous presumption of doubt. Not, well, that's an unusual phrase, presumption of doubt. Presumption is stepping across a boundary of propriety, taking too much upon oneself. And it gave me a, a really different feel for what doubt is, that unbelief, doubt is unbelief, and unbelief means I'm believing in something else or someone besides God. That's what doubt is. I, I, I'm putting my faith in something other than him that it's ultimate and he's not ultimate. His promise is not ultimate. His power is not ultimate. So to doubt is to presume that something else has power, not God is to presume uh, the terms that God can act in, defining and dictating terms for God, what he can do, cannot do, will do, will not do, rather than what he says he will do, what he promises to do, what he's accomplished in Christ to be applied to us. So doubt can seem like simple weakness, but doubt really, in many ways, is shot through with pride. We doubt that with God, nothing is impossible. Uh, we, we doubt that his majesty becomes most visible when human resources are exhausted. It's when we are at our end, always, when we are at our end, 
that we begin by faith to actually share in and see the sovereign God act on our behalf. So this unbelief is kind of the norm of human existence. And and the honest cry of the Father is so striking, isn't it? I'm, I, I don't, I know I don't believe like I should. I, I, I should, I, I, I'm, and probably what had happened to him, he, he came initially expecting Jesus to do something. When his disciples wouldn't, couldn't do anything, then probably he doesn't think Jesus can now, see. The, the relationship here was hurt. But what's great about this is that as he cries out, it, it's as though he is saying, and, and true faith acts like this. True faith knows how small and inadequate it is. It's like, I've got the greatest faith. No, I realize I'm weak. I'm helpless. Oh, Lord, even my faith is not what it needs to be. And I think of several hymns. Uh, we call them invitation hymns, not invitations to maybe come down front necessarily, but invitations to come to Christ. Uh, the, the most famous, just as I am, right? But notice, just as I am in waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. So you see, struggling with doubts, having fightings and fears within, and it's as though I'm taking this whole mess of my life and my doubts and my unbelief and I'm putting it in your gracious, powerful hands. Even in the midst of unbelief, there can be that helpless trust in one who can act for us. You see the same thing in uh, Come You Sinners. The, the, the verse reads, Come you needy, come and welcome God's free bounty glorify. That is, his abundance, glorify his abundance, which means trust in his abundance. Honor the abundance he wants to give to you. So his free bounty glorify, and then he, what does he say? True belief and true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh, every grace that even brings you without mercy, uh, without money, come to Jesus and buy. In other words, with nothing in your hand, he grants you faith. He grants you repentance. So even as you're, you and I are saying, well, I don't know if I have enough faith. And? And what? Come to him. He will give you faith. He saves us from A to Z. Twice in, the, uh, uh, in Acts, it speaks of Jesus being exalted either to pour out repentance on Israel or uh, uh, that he has poured out repentance on the Gentiles. And at the end of Philippians, Paul refers to the fact that God not only has given us faith, but he has given us this opportunity to suffer with him. God grants us all that we need to come to him. And so that hymn also says, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. We can't hold back and say, well, maybe one day I'll have faith. No, come, put yourself in his hands. Hear the, the, the man as he helplessly cries out, as he's even struggling uh, for faith. 
And so faith uh, has no confidence in itself, only confidence in Jesus. And it doesn't judge Jesus by the weakness of his followers. Uh, He's the more powerful one that John spoke of, the one that he is coming behind him, this uh, powerful Christ. And he, he casts out the demon. It's a lifetime guarantee. Uh, you'll never return again. And even in the way that the, the boy seems to die in front of everybody and he's raised it is a purposeful picture of death and resurrection, uh, which is really what must happen with all of us when we are brought out of our unbelief and the dominion of the enemy. It's the death of our old life and a resurrection to a new life. Such a wonderful picture and an anticipation that the only reason, the only way we can be set free from the spiritual forces that govern us in our unbelief is the death and resurrection of Christ that is even foreshadowed here. So uh, this is a, a marvelous picture of what Christ does for his people to set us free. And what a lesson to us that we're to always be constantly aware of our inadequacy as we serve Christ, as we serve him in all of our lives, to constantly understand apart from him I can do nothing and anything that I have I have received it from him but be encouraged he asks us to do things beyond our ability always in ministry everything is beyond our ability but it's his ministry it's his work it's what he wants to manifest in this world that constantly drives us to prayer and so as Matthew says, Jesus told them it was because of the littleness of your faith. Here, he points to prayer, and it shows that uh, self-confidence means little faith, and it usually means little prayer as well. Uh, Or prayers not expectant, prayers bound by human possibilities, rather than prayers that are latching on to the great power of God. And it is interesting as Paul is praying in Ephesians 1 that we uh, understand God and who he is uh, for us, he, he speaks of hope, he speaks of the inheritance we have, but the main thing he talks about is the greatness of his power toward us who believe, that he compares with the resurrection of Christ itself. And so for us, even as we've had particular struggles in our own church. Um, How are we trusting him to do mighty things for us, even though there has been failure in many ways? Isn't it the time then to bring ourselves before him and expect him to do great things for us? So we when we see our weakness, when we see struggle, when we see failure in ourselves, in our church, or in the church uh, worldwide, we come to him who is able to set us free from our sin. We come to the one, and he's always calling us to believe in the greatness of his power and the greatness of his accomplishment for us. And 
even when society gets darker and darker around us, we continue, we must continue to believe that we are governed by this almighty Jesus Christ who is always calling us, trust me, trust me, trust me. Believe in me. Believe in all that I intend to do to set you free from your sin and to set more and more and more people free from their sin. That is a glorious prospect for us throughout the whole of our life, individually and as a congregation. Let's pray. Lord, enable us to understand the wealth of good that Jesus intends to do for his people. Lord, we pray that you would grant us great faith. You would grant us expectation. You would grant us to lay hold of your promises, to believe in your promises. To, when we see the accomplishments of Christ and, and as they're displayed and enlarged before us in the uh, letters that the apostles write, Lord, may we believe in those accomplishments and what they will do for us and for one another. Oh, Lord, give us grace. Give us grace to believe you, to trust you, to know how good and great you are. And all of this is directed to the good, the, the, the good benefit of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.